It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, it's a Friday evening, and how are you on this Friday? I'm great. I had sushi for lunch. Ooh, cool. Yeah, ordered out sushi. Very nice. That's always a good day when Jerry has sushi. It's been a long time since I had sushi for lunch. Like in the little plastic container it comes in. Emma and I, my daughter, sat down. We had sushi for lunch. It was great. Nice, nice. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fan Cast. Instagram, we are at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry your thoughts on sushi at therushcast at gmail.com. Lex did the open and close, as he always does. And Jerry, we've got a fun episode today. Looking forward to this one. But before we get into it, I hope you have an email for us. I do. This is one from Spencer in Florida. What's up, Spencer? He says, I'm 29 years old and a longtime Rush fan, and I'm so grateful for the time and effort you put into this show. In the seventh grade, I discovered the Rush Retrospective 2 compilation disc in my parents' CD rack at home, popped it into my Discman, and was hooked. Discman? Yeah, that's cool. Those things, man, they chew through batteries. Oh, man, <laughs> it was the worst. Subdivisions and many others of the 80s tracks got me through some tough times in middle school and high school. I'm grateful that this podcast platform exists as it reminds me that millions of others relate deeply to Rush's music in a similar way. These days, I'm a sports broadcaster. Oh, nice. I'll often sit in the broadcast booth basking in a stadium's atmosphere before the game, and I jump for joy on the inside when Rush comes on the stadium's playlist as I reflect on what their music has meant to me at various stages of my life. I'm only recently getting into their 21st century albums, so thank you for being my guides through this latter chapter of the band's discography as well keep up all the great work. That's it. Awesome. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah. Really appreciate that. So, Jerry, we were talking not too long ago about our first two episodes, which were our Power Windows episodes. Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> well, what did you think I was going to say? <laughs> that they were our worst episodes. I thought you were going to I, No, there. no, I wasn't going to say that. I mean, I don't know if they were our worst episodes, but we were least prepared for those episodes. Let's say that. Yes, you know, the inside baseball on that is that I had prepared furiously because I was and I was under the impression that we could cover everything and that I don't know, we would we would just be like oracles about rush, right? It turned out not to be true, in case anyone has, <laughs> has been paying attention for the past however many episodes. But I left my notebook at work. So when I came to your house that night, I had nothing in front of me. It was all just straight off the dome, as they say. So I think that might have caused a little bit of the the whatever that episode was. Yeah. Well, we decided to just wing it. And since then we've been talking about maybe talking about power windows again. So that's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to do. We're going to start talking about power windows again. We're going to start again. And this time for each song, we're going to bring in a guest that we've had previously on the podcast to help us with each song. Yeah, it's like a ratings week stunt casting or something. Exactly. And I think it's going to be fun and it'll add something to the conversation. Hopefully they'll be able to interpret the songs much better than we did. Hopefully. Hopefully we'll be able to interpret the songs much better than we did. Let's get into it. Power Windows is Rush's 11th studio album released October 29th, 1985 and produced by Peter Collins. The charts I always give you, Jer, it hit number two in Canada, number nine in the UK, and number 10 in the U.S., that's pretty good. That's very good. Rush were on a great run at this point. I mean, Moving Pictures got them on this run, and Signals, Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows, all did great on the charts. Yeah. And so much so, it was certified platinum in January 1986, 
just three months after its release. Wow. Three months. Three months platinum. That's crazy. That is crazy. And I always do this to you. The singles from Power Windows, Jer, there are five. Five? Come on, man. And look, there are eight songs, so you've got a pretty good chance of at least getting the first one right. Well, it's got to be the big money. The big money, yeah. Right? God, I didn't really even know what the other ones would be. How about Mystic Rhythms? Mystic Rhythms, yeah. Really? You you remember the video, of course. It has to be Mystic Rhythms. yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right. I do remember the video. Let's see if we can get the next three. Oh, God. Grand Designs. No. Oh, come on, man. Oh, boy. Territories, Manhattan Project, and Marathon. Oh. Kind of makes sense if you think about it. It does make sense. Everything makes sense once you know the truth, Steve. Well, it wouldn't be a motion detector. They never played that live, right? True. And then Grand Designs, they did play live, but I don't know. I I just wouldn't peg that as a single. No, five singles, though. That's a lot. So shall we talk about the album art, Jer? Yes, let's talk about the album art. So first I want to go to Ultimate Classic Rock. Our friend Ryan Reed interviewed Hugh Syme. That's right. He asked him about all the album covers. And here's a quote from Hugh. I finished the painting with the character in an empty room, and I loved its solitude and simplicity. Everybody liked it. Getty came up for air, which he often did at the 11th hour. (laughs) Came up for air. (laughs) Because he was so consumed with Alex on the music side of things. And he said, this is great. I love it. Where are my TVs? At Lee's insistence, Syme revised the artwork to include a trio of televisions, adding another veneer of visual meaning. And he admits with a laugh, I remember feeling somewhere between annoyed and challenged when I heard this was a client requirement. Hmm. So he added the TVs at Getty's insistence. At the last minute. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things on this album cover. And later, before you get into that, to this day, I credit Getty with the wisdom of insisting on those TVs because it really does help the painting. It gives another layer of presence and meaning. So there was nothing there on the left-hand side? I guess not. this image? I guess not. Wow, that, that would seem strange, right? I mean, obviously, it would seem strange only because we know what it looks like now. But if there was nothing there, hmm, that's interesting. And I have... Hugh Syme's book, The Art of Rush, which I'm having a hard time picking up here. <laughs> it's so huge. Like it weighs 70 pounds. It's so huge. So a uh, quote from Neil, there's a crazy guy sitting in a room thinking he can control the world with a remote, and he's doing it. That's the part I love. Yeah, it's an interesting cover, right? Yeah. For a rock album. And there's a lot of things that are, that are happening. I'm looking at it right now, right? There's a storm in the window. Mm-hmm. Looks like there's a lightning bolt coming in the window, right? There's an electrical outlet in front of the boy mm-hmm. or the man that has no, nothing's plugged in, right? But then on the one TV, the one that's sort of like in the middle, there's a ghostly image of the back cover. Did you notice that? Yes. Which is the same boy. Which is the same boy in the back cover, mm-hmm. which is also a painting. Yeah. Which is crazy, right? Because that looks like a photo the back cover with the binoculars. Mm-hmm. So there's a, this ghostly image on this TV, but the TV isn't plugged in because the electrical outlet is empty. Spooky, right? It's spooky. It is spooky. It's very eighties. It is very eighties. I love the TVs. I wonder if they're actual, if they were actual models of the TVs. Do you think, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Cause they're, they're pretty cool looking. I would love a TV. Look, that looks like that probably weigh a ton. I think this is one of my favorite rush album covers. The shadows on the floor are interesting too, aren't they? It's a very, it's a very 
disquieting image if you start to like look at it. Kind of looks like you, Jar. You were sixteen <laughs> you think years so? old. Minus the hair, your hair didn't look like that. But that no, I didn't. Didn't have like an undercut there. You're very thin like that, though. Very thin. That is very true. He actually might be more muscular than I was back then, <laughs> which is a, a, a terrible thing to even consider. All right. Well, why don't we get into the album, Jared? This is very exciting. The first song on Power Windows is The Big Money. Joining us today to discuss the big money, one of our first guests here on Something for Nothing, episode 22, music educator, performer, and composer, Nathan Santos. Welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Well, thanks for having me back. I was looking forward to doing this. I was glad to be back. So uh, is Power Windows one of your favorite Rush albums, Nathan? It could be the. Oh, wow. (laughs) Really? Yeah, it was right uh, around this time that, you know, uh, we all are kind of um, solidifying our identities and and coming to understanding what we want to do with our lives and where our aesthetic, you know, uh, tastes are. And Power Windows was probably one that I was obsessed with. And Hold Your Fire, I listened to endlessly. And uh, Signals was great too, but, you know, I think Power Windows was probably the thing that made me feel like this is exactly you know, what I would like to be doing with my life, um, stuff that they had on that record. Um, especially after analyzing this tune for this episode, <laughs> um, I'm finding all kinds of stuff that, you know, I didn't really even realize and it makes me appreciate those guys even more. That's great. Mm-hmm. We usually start out with a quote, Nathan, when we talk about a song and I've got a quote that's right up your alley. Ready for this? Go for it. This is from Alex Lifeson, 1996 Guitar World interview. That was a tough one that took a long time to complete. It was recorded at Montserrat. That is the studio they recorded at. It's on an island in the Caribbean, which I didn't know that. Which is amazing. The guitar was tuned up a whole step with the E string at F's, and I played a lot of open chords. I did a lot of drop ins where I hit a chord and let it ring, then dropped in the next chord and let it ring, and so on. When we started recording the song, it sounded too ordinary. So we tried dropping in those chords during the verses as an experiment. I remember doing the solo in this studio in England, Sarm East, which is in the east end of London. We set aside a week for solos, last-minute vocals, and mixing. The control room was tiny. There was barely enough room for me to turn my body around when I was playing. But I got a really great sound with the repeats and lots of reverb. Anything jump out there for you, Nathan? I I think the the thing that is... Really interesting about that was he tuned his guitar up a whole step to do this tune. Yeah. Um, and, you know, get, fooling around with different guitar tunings is not out of the ordinary these days, especially. But 
Um, back then, I think it, the, the key that they, re, they uh, composed this um, enabled him, when he tuned up the guitar, to play in a lot more open kind of voicings. And he was getting a special ring out of the, the uh, Stratocaster that he was using that just lent toward that sound of the 80s. Kind of reminds you of the edge from U2. Um, a lot of the, you know, police and a lot of those English bands were, you know, creating the same kind of guitar sound that he was getting out of his. So I think that was what they were going for at that time. Yeah, I always hear about bands or guitarists tuning down. I don't remember the last time I heard anybody talk about tuning up. Right, exactly. A lot of times tuning down is for the benefit of the singer, but also to get a little bit more darker sound and grumbly sound. For them, I think they wanted to get a lot more brighter sound. For this particular tune especially, he found that it worked really well. And, and I don't know if this is getting ahead of the game, but you know, all, in his solo, he's playing a lot of overtones and harmonics, which he would not have been able to do if they st stuck to the key that they were in at the, at the time, which you know, Getty played in that because he didn't retune his bass. So that meant that Alex was able to play a lot of these really neat overtone things because he was up in a, you know, in a key that enabled him to play open strings and still be in the key that they were all recording. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, as, a, as an extremely amateur guitarist, what's the difference between tuning up and using a capo? I mean, isn't this kind of the same effect to use a capo as opposed to tuning up? Well, it just has to do with the, you know, the strings are at their standard length if you don't use the capo. Mm. And you are getting, you know, a different timbre. It it's really has to do with timbre more than anything. You know, the, the length of the strings, if you start shortening them when you put a capo on, you're getting a, a different kind of, of uh, tension from the string. So... Mm. Uh, I don't know if, Steve, if you found that um, quote that Getty was talking about, you know, using the wall basses for this particular album for the first time. No, no, I didn't. That's interesting, too. Apparently, they, they tried out all kinds of different sounds. He, he plugged in all the basses he had and compared all the sounds and would pick the sounds. And that's where he came up with the wall and said, I'm just going to stick with this. And the whole point of me saying that is because, um, you know, choices of instruments also had to do with the, the kind of timbre they were going for, the, the sound that they, they wanted to have in the texture. And that was very trendy at the time to have more of a Strat kind of sound, that tinny, uh, you know, jangly kind of sound that, that Strats can generate. So again, going back to what you were asking about, Jerry, the, the string length has to do with that. I mean, you know, sometimes it, it compromises the sound a little bit or it changes the sound enough that, you know, they would prefer to have it at, its, at uh, the normal string length. And I'm assuming that that's what gives Rush on maybe this whole album, those open sounds, because like Alex said in that quote, like his guitar playing isn't very riff-based. It's very like splash-based almost. You know right. what I mean? Like he's just coming in right. to the song like wow all the time. And I'm assuming that's what he was going for and that's right. the way he achieved it. Right, and you know, the... With the interactions of all the keyboard sounds and all those samplings that they were bringing into that tune, um, you know, Alex's place was the guitar sound was more occupying the same area, the uh, tonal spectrum of the keyboard sounds. So he had to do something to distinguish what he was doing um, rather than interfere. Even with the, the, the synthesized sounds that Neil Peart was bringing in with his Simmons drums and things like that, 
um, they would all be occupying kind of similar spaces. So they had to find ways of putting it into the mix that enabled them to find places to live, you know, with all their sounds. So now the three of us, we're all huge Power Windows fans, but what do you think yeah. the Rush fan from the 70s thought when he first heard the big money? Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, when I listen to all your, your podcasts and all the guests talking about, you know, different eras, I think one reason why this may have been difficult was because of all the synthetic sounds that mm -hmm. they were experimenting with. Rather than having like 2112, you know, just the, the trio, the power trio sound, the traditional, you know, the guitar fills up all the space in the middle there. Um, that's not there anymore. And plus, you know, you have uh, different levels of, in the uh, EQing and the mixing, you can hear more uh, distinct uh, treble sounds and thicker bass sounds, all kinds of different timbres that the synthesizers are able to generate. Uh, that's something that are, is probably going to be rejected by people who just want to hear straight guitar sounds, uh, much like you know the you know Black Sabbath or something like that that didn't use keyboards at all. And honestly, when you ask me why I like Power Windows, and I come from families of composers, and we're all you know listen to orchestral music, and to me, uh, I like all those extra things and see how Rush uses them in a very constructive and very creative way, rather than just having to limit yourself to three, which I don't mind doing either, but, you know, Berlioz was somebody in the 19th century that wanted to have, you know, courses of 400 or, a, a, you know, instrumental orchestra of 200 people on the stage, all operating together, and that's because they were bringing in all these different sounds and wanted to see how they could use them. So, I, I mean, those are the kind of things that really you know, it got me excited at that time. So on this show, Nathan, we not only discuss the music, which you're an expert at, we also break down the lyrics, which Jerry loves to do. That's right. And before we do that, I have a quote from Neil. The genesis of this song is the first book of the USA trilogy by John Dos Passos in the 1920s. It deals with the JP Morgan loans and the economic causes of World War I. I didn't want the voice of the song to be totally in the voice of a cynical, anti-corporate reactionary, though because things like the Ford Foundation do accomplish a lot of good. I mean, the church and the worthy events like Live Aid are big money, too. You know, typical rock song, right? Yeah. About <laughs> J.P. Morgan trust fund. Right. Well, well, now the theme of Power Windows is power, and of course, money is power. Yeah. So shall, shall we go through the lyrics and see if we can figure them out together? Sure. You know, one thing I wanted to say right off the bat is that as I was listening to this song for the past week, it not that I didn't notice this before, you know, but there's a lot of words that repeat just for emphasis. Mm -hmm. and it almost becomes, uh, you kind of get a nerd to it almost by the end. And I guess it kind of brings to the forefront the fact that, you know, big money in this kind of way can be, you know, can anesthetize you in every way. You know what I mean? Like you, things just happen because people with money make them happen. And the rest of us are just kind of going along for the ride. And from a stylistic point of view, mentioning Dos Passos, I think what Peart was trying to do was emulate his style. I, I read a quote where he said, I, I was not channeling him necessarily, but I was trying to imitate his style. Mm. And one thing that Dos, Dos Passos did that was unique was create sort of sound bites in his characters. And this is one way that these lyrics are constructed are like, 
you know, a total 80s, you know, sound bites. Yeah. Where, you know, you, these politicians didn't go on for long periods of time. They just wanted the, the main thing to pop out. And I think that's exactly why he constructed the lyrics this way. Yeah, there's also a, a, a poetic form called anaphora, which is just a constant repeating of words or small phrases at the beginning or right. maybe even at the end, mm -hmm. just to kind of reinforce what the song or the poem is really about. And in the verse, he repeats big money over and over and over again. It happens all the time. It's big money at the beginning of the, the verse. The pre-chorus is sometimes. Mm -hmm. The chorus itself is it's. I mean, it just happens throughout the entire song. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, let's go through it. Big money goes around the world. Big money underground. Big money got a mighty voice. Big money make no sound. Love the contrast <laughs> there. Well, that's the whole song is just, is just contrasts. Right, the extremes, back and forth, especially, you know, big money got a mighty voice, big money make no sound. Because if you have a lot of money, you can, you know, you've got the biggest microphone, but also there's so much that happens underneath the surface when it comes to money, especially like in politics or whatever, you know. Money's just flowing through underground. And that's where the power element comes in too. Yeah, exactly. The, in the influence. That's where the real power is, is mm -hmm. the people who don't make any noise whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Big money pull a million strings. Big money hold the prize. Big money weave a mighty web. Big money draw the flies. Which I love because the spider makes the web, but the spider doesn't draw the flies, right? The spider has to wait for the flies to come to it into the web. But big money weaves the web, a huge, a mighty web, but also draws the flies to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like money makes money. You know what I mean? You have to have money to make money. And this is here we have a, a giant money spider making a huge money web <laughs> and it's drawing to it more money flies for the spider to eat. It's just fantastic. So then we get into the chorus, <laughs> sometimes pushing people around, sometimes pulling out the rug, sometimes pushing all the buttons, sometimes pulling out the plug. These are just great, great phrases by Neil. Mm-hmm. It is. They're all, all, they're all great phrases. And then we get to the, it's the power and the glory. It's a war in paradise. It's a Cinderella story on a tumble of the dice. Which I always think uh, Bill Murray in <laughs> the Cinderella story uh, <laughs> in, in uh, Caddyshack. Yeah. Obviously a reference to gambling, right, Jar? Yeah. I mean, that's one of Neil's favorite things, right? It's just the randomness of everything, right? Right. It's the power and the glory. It's a war in paradise, which again, a war in paradise, that just shouldn't be. It shouldn't happen. There should not be wars in, in paradise, right? And then it's a Cinderella story on a tumble of the dice, which I guess is a Cinderella story. It's just Cinderella's story is a, is a story of as random as any story could ever be, right? Well, that's taking somebody and making them big. Right. You know, out of nowhere. Out of yeah. nowhere. Totally randomly. My interpretation of this song basically is, you know, whether money leaves a positive mark on your life largely depends on how much of it you have, really, right? Not only that, but <laughs> the randomness of having it. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, sure, a lot of people work really hard for the money they have, but there's also a lot of people who don't work at all for the money they've inherited. And that's just, that's a Cinderella story, just having to be born in the right place. And a lot of people who have, who work hard for money, but still don't have a lot. That don't have a lot of it. Going to get caught in that web though, sooner or later, right, Steve? That money web. Indeed. 
All right, let's continue. Big money <laughs> goes around the world. Big money take a cruise. Big money leave a mighty wake. Big money leave a bruise. Big money make a million dreams. Big money spin big deals. Big money make a mighty head. Big money spin big wheels. What do you think spin big wheels means, guys? Gambling again or something else? I was thinking gambling. I was thinking literally the money wheel in Atlantic City. I don't know if you've ever played the money wheel, Steve. Have you ever seen the money wheel, Nathan, in the casino? Uh, yeah, I it's have seen big, it. It's just a gigantic wheel with denominations on it. You put your dollar mm-hmm. bill down or whatever and you spin it. I try not to engage in that because I don't think I'm going <laughs> to come out a winner. Why get started? Yeah, it's just another example of chance, right? <laughs> right. And then in the chorus, uh, we get more contrast, sometimes building ivory towers, sometimes knocking castles down, sometimes building you a stairway. And I love when Getty says, lock you underground. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've come to know a lot about ivory towers over the past couple of years. And, <laughs> That's uh, true. And really uh, dis- disenchanted by all that. But it's true. I mean, it's another example of bigness. And you know, money will get you to that place where you think you're opinion means everything there's also the fragility of i'm thinking of sand castles he's going to say sand castles, right sometimes knocking castles down i mean i guess the difference between an ivory tower and a castle ivory tower is this is this the smart people and castle might be a little more grungy and just just rich in general right mm-hmm. i know you guys uh, i went back and reviewed your your first two podcasts just to make sure i wasn't doubling anything you said before but what you said you about, did more research than we did yeah well <laughs> <laughs> bullying is is part of that i guess what what you guys had expressed about knocking the castles down and you know, people right. get to be feel like they have enough influence they can do anything they want to anybody they want right and they mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. you have enough money you can you can bulldoze literally anything it's that old-time religion it's the kingdom they would rule it's the fool on television getting paid to play the fool that line always confuses me a little bit. I don't know if it confused me the first time. Yeah, did it confuse Jerry the first time, Nathan? You listened to it. We didn't. <laughs> there was, seemed to be a lot of confusion back then. I mean, hey, the first one, you know. It was the first one. There was, uh, you know, yeah, that, yeah, that's why we're doing this over. <laughs> Just so you know. But the fool, it's, it's the fool on television getting played to play the fool. I've always, like, what does that have to do with, with the influence of money? Is it just because money is it's uh, like it just always plays the same role all the time well because you're getting paid entertainers you know the court jesters or whatever they're, they're the ones that are drawing all the attention and regardless of what you dress up or what lines you say in front of the camera or you know what you have to do on camera you still know you're doing it because you're getting paid <laughs> right part of the gig yeah it's true mm-hmm. so let's finish these up big money goes around the world big money give and take Big money done a power of good. Big money make mistakes. Big money got a heavy hand. Big money take control. Big money got a mean streak. And my favorite, of course, big money got no soul. Yeah. I love it when Getty sings that yeah. too. Oh, yeah. He really hits that and it's it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you want to talk a little bit about the, the solo, Nathan? You're the only. I was just uh, going to say the comp- same thing. You're reading my mind, Jared. You're the only competent person here who can talk about but, but solo. Before you say anything, Nathan, I think it's a very underrated solo section. We always talk about Rush's solo sections like Free Will and Tom Sawyer where they're all jamming. 
This is another one of those, don't you think, Nathan? Well, again, I I was looking at it from a, a, comp, a composer's point of view, and there's two parts of that solo. The beginning part, before he actually starts doing more, you call it improv, um, where he's doing all those harmonic overtones, are meant to... I mean, this this is all generating an arc, you know, of, of energy. So he's starting off small and letting what came before it dissolve so they have somewhere else to build to. So once he gets to the part in the second part where he's actually using a lot of moving notes, it's a lot more... He he sounds a little bit more like the, the solos that he had used previously. Let me put it that way. So the fact that he was using those harmonics prior to that... Um, meant that I think the technology was enabling him to uh, color the timbre in different ways. He was using different effects and things like that, that he was enjoying uh, trying to get those timbres. So, you know, you get to a point where, you know, people knew of Alex Lifeson by this point, knew he could play. So there's no need to have to, you know, play amazing technical solos all the time. And you want to actually start artistically expressing yourself at a certain point. As I said, he's proven himself already. So it's a matter of trying to see where he can take the music and lend to the, the in, entire um, track in, in some way. So there's a build from the beginning to the end. And that's why, you know, you get to the end where they start going back into the pre-course again. And um, it developmentally makes sense. And it, if you can track it from the start of the whole section to the end you think wow that was fabulous you know because he was able to to make that arc happen and is he using a whammy bar at this yes. point for all of those swoops and things like yeah, that yeah the tremolo bar was in there you know the swoops kind of remind me of the extremes of the lyrics you know what i mean he's going up and then all the way down like in the same kind of breath almost yes definitely and i know he he said there at some point that he didn't really even want to do solos like towards the later albums he was getting to the point with snakes and arrows you guys just did you know where he would rather he didn't really need feel like he needed to solo on every tune mm. and that was something that was part of the 80s too the the whole virtuoso you know guitar player thing that everybody needed to be the best guitar player around and you know as, as i said by by the time we reached this point in in their career they've already established themselves they don't need to wow on every single track and I think that's a great thing about this particular album is they were exploring themselves artistically and not worrying about their technical skill because they've already proven themselves. And that's why this this track is amazing because there's all these motific ideas that you can hear throughout if you were to listen closely. And there's, you know, development of those motifs. And I was I was really having fun analyzing this just to get ready for this today. And I thought, oh, man, I I can't believe they did that there or whatever. Just amazing stuff. I know he's one of the greatest guitarists. He can easily shred with the shredders. Definitely. But he doesn't. He plays to the song, right? Yes. That's what makes him so great. Right, right. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to mention the music video. Do you guys remember the video for this song? Yep. Mm, the Monopoly board The thing. Monopoly board thing. It was surprising yeah. to me. I watched it for the first time in years today, and it's very similar in style to Dire Straits' Money for Nothing. That's what I was going to say. I thought it was. They got the same director, didn't they? I think so. It had. It would have to be. I mean, it, yeah. it looks, in parts, it looks mm -hmm. a lot like Money for Nothing. And um, Alex's sky blue suit is what jumped out at me <laughs> <laughs> while they're jumping around on the Monopoly board. 
Very cool. Yeah. He had the best outfits in the 80s. You're throwing the drumstick up in the air and right before they come back in at the very end. Yeah. So that, during that grand pause. Yeah, good stuff. And, you know, that's that's all the kind of stuff that we sat there and watched. You know, <laughs> got home from school and oh, you know, nobody was there to so turn MTV on. And, right. you know, that those are the graphics that we really responded to. Yeah, we're hoping Nina Blackwood would play some Rush, you know. <laughs> come on, Nina. Throw some <laughs> Rush on there. <laughs> you know, somebody sent me an email and it was about uh, Show of Hands. We did. We talked about Show of Hands. At the end of The Big Money, there's this like riff that they do at the end. The da 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 And somebody asked yeah, me right. if I knew what that was from. Do you guys know what that's from? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm sure Alex stole it from somebody. Like he, he did a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's evidently from. Oh, you know. Yeah, I do. Go ahead. Do you Tell me. It's not coming to my brain right now. <laughs> da 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 da. It's. Um, a Cheech and Chong song. Cheech and Chong, that's it. That's earache it. in my ear. Earache in my ear, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some uh, one a listener named Jim just happened to send that to me, uh, that trivia question, like last week. And I had no idea, because again, it sounded so familiar. I've heard it before. Yeah. I could yeah. not place it whatsoever, though. Yeah, they were using like Three Stooges and all kinds of stuff back then. Yeah. And throwing in all those comedians, South Park. and That's right. Yep. Well, Nathan, this was fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us and expanding our knowledge of the big money. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me back. It's always nice to, to be with your audience, and congratulations. It's really grown. You guys have been doing a really great job. Thanks so much, oh, Nathan. And yeah. yeah, we might have to have you back just to talk about any random song. Well, I'm still, <laughs> or you could tell us what, what is going on musically. We talked about having that bat signal, so if you, if you need a... That's right. <laughs> Throw up the Nathan signal. Call me on the red phone and yeah. say, oh, is this the hemisphere's cord right here? And I'll geek out on that anytime you need. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So, Joe, the next track on Power Windows is Grand Designs. Jared, to help us break down Grand Designs, it is our pleasure to welcome back Ryan Murphy, the fearless leader of the Rush Fans Instagram page, and also our guest on episodes 26 and 89 of Something for Nothing. That's right. This is this is his third appearance. This is his third appearance. He's in the Three Timers Club. Three Timers Club and Grand Designs was his number two overall Rush song on his ranking. So Ryan, welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me again. My uh, my favorite Power Windows song. I'm excited to talk about it. Very nice. So we usually start out with a quote, and I found this quote. This is Getty discussing Neil's drumming 
on this song. I don't remember any difficulty with that song. One of the best things about playing with the same person for a very long time is you have this kind of telepathic connection in a way. You know each other so well stylistically that there's a whole range of probabilities that you have in common. So if I hear him going in a direction and he hears me going in a direction, we can shift to that direction. I think we figured out a way to complement each other so that it's comfortable. Hmm. And um, Getty and Neil, I think, on this whole album are really symbiotic. What do you guys think? I would agree. I think Alex takes a back seat, mm-hmm. but I think he really hits his spots and does it very well. And this song is no exception. He's kind of filling in the gaps between the spots that Getty and Neil are, are giving him. Yeah, because I think on, on much of this album, uh, you know, a lot of the keyboardy stuff was was set, and Alex had to come in later and just kind of like figure out exactly where he was going to, you know, shine on every song. And I think he he did that on every song, especially on this one. Maybe not so much on "Hold Your Fire." In a couple of places on "Hold Your Fire," it's like, where did Alex go? But on "Power Windows," he, it's perfect, man. It's absolutely perfect. Everything he does. So Ryan, you mentioned this on episode 89, as I mentioned, but what, why is this song your number two rush song? Why do you love this song so much? For me, it's always hard to explain why I like certain songs, uh, but I just really love the synth era in general. And this song, it just gets me hyped. I mean, seeing this song three times on the Clockwork Angels tour was a treat. I got excited to see it every single time. It's really just a song that I never get tired of. It's kind of upbeat. It's actually, funny enough, a song that I introduced my buddy, who was my best man in my wedding. Uh, I introduced him to Rush with this album and with this song that I thought mm. I thought I'd tell you guys. And I asked him for, I asked him for a quote, uh, you know, or just something to to read today. And he says, "New fan I am, upbeat song with nice synths. It is." Like it, I do. <laughs> is your best man Yoda? <laughs> uh, his his name is Joe, so we'll go we'll go with Joda. Uh, he he goes on to say, "Power Windows is the first Rush album I listened to in full. Grand designs and the upbeat style of it, especially with the synths, is why I, why that album will constantly be a part of my playlist." And funny enough, I mean, I agree with it. And it's it's a phenomenal Alex guitar solo too in there where. He the solo starts and then he just he goes like two pick slides at the beginning, mm. uh, and very tasteful use of the whammy bar too. I love how he whammies on this. Uh, maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of where you guys want to take this, but right after the solo, Getty sings. He's singing. We break the surface tension, and Alex is just going like ham on the whammy bar. Right, and I think it's phenomenal. I I love listening to it. Yeah, we were just talking with Nathan Santos about the big money. And I mentioned the, the whammy bar and that seems to be Alex's go-to move on this entire album, right? Uh-huh. Is to, to reach some kind of dynamic range by just leaning into that whammy sure. bar to get like the highs and the lows all the time, which is something he really hasn't. I mean, he started doing it, I guess on, would you guys say he did it for the most part at a grace under pressure for a lot of those solos and things like uh, that? I think so. Yeah. And Getty's bass line on this song is phenomenal, too. One of his best, I think. Just amazing. You think that he would, you know, take the bass playing down 
a notch or three. No. While he's also playing keyboards, no. but he doesn't. He's he just doesn't. still going crazy. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Uh, on this album and Hold Your Fire too, Getty's bass playing is probably some of his best, I think. Yeah, nothing sacrificed. So I know you guys want to go through the lyrics. So why don't we? A to B, different degrees. Let's start there, Jer. No idea. <laughs> How about that? You know, Nathan said that he listened to our first two episodes when we talked about Power Windows the first time. But you and I haven't done that. Correct. Steve. So I have no idea what my reaction was to this song. But my reaction to the song now is I really have don't have much idea of what it's about. And A to B, different degrees. I really don't have any clue as to what that has to do with the rest of the song. Now, I found a quote from the book Merely Players, and I have no idea whether this is from the band or just the opinion of the author, which is Robert Teleria. He said Rush intended the song to be about contemporary music, which they, meaning Rush, felt to be increasingly image-oriented and superficial. Thoughts? I agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. My own interpretation of the song, it's kind of similar to that. I think it's Rush taking almost a look in the mirror and almost reflecting on their career, how they went against the run of the mill. It's mm-hmm. almost like talking about, for example, one of the one of the lines says you sometimes have to listen to a lot of useless talk. That's almost a shot at the record company. I think that's the record company being the useless talk because they are looking outside the box. They're challenging themselves uh, to progress forward because Without that, then progress is not really possible. You know, they differentiated from what other bands were doing at, um, not at the time. I mean, I guess they they brought the Sinston, which was the '80s. But for a lot of a lot of what Rush did was very unique. Gene Simmons has been on record saying, "What kind of a band is Rush? It's Rush. It's almost right. like it's their own genre of music." You know. Now, Jerry, you did say on episode one. <laughs> Oh, the boy. very first thing that came out of your mouth when you started talking about Grand Designs was, Grand Designs is a weird song. Mm. That's it. That's all you <laughs> said. It is a weird song. But it is. It's unique. Well, after reading that quote and reading the lyrics, I'm thinking of 80s hair metal bands. I don't know why. So much style without substance. So much stuff without style. It's hard to recognize the real thing. Comes along once in a while. Are they talking about the other bands of that era that have so much style without substance, et cetera? That's my thought. But it was all stuff without style. A lot of it was stuff without style, right? Well, I think it's style without substance. You know, you look at a band like that I enjoy, but Motley Crue. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a lot of style without substance. You know, when Vince Neil is holding the microphone to the crowd and say, here, sing the lyrics, there's no and there's no substance. And it's all about women and and drugs and rock and roll and Rush. Three of my favorite things. (laughs) Rush has the substance. They deviated from the norm to steal from vital signs. And I think this song is a reflection of that. Yeah, but the second line is so much stuff without style. And I guess my point is that that stuff was just style. If it was about hair metal and kind of the schlocky bands that, you know, came up in the eighties, that stuff was just style. So I'm not so so sure that's so much stuff without style references hair metal. The interpretation I have of this 
is a piece of art or music that's magnificent is rare. It's a rare thing and, and often overlooked like a rare and precious metal beneath a ton of rock. It takes some time and trouble to separate from the stock. Right. Not everything that's good though takes time and trouble. Do you know what I mean? Not every, not everything that you pull out from underneath, you know, a ton of rock is worth digging for though. True. True. I think. I'm not sure. I know I've, I've never really done that. So maybe, maybe it is. Maybe if I dug more, things would be worth it. So that's why I don't know what this song is about. Ryan, if you listened to that first episode, did I have any idea what the song was about then? You did not. Uh, however, <laughs> Good. Thank God. However, Steve said on episode one. Oh boy. No, th- this is this is a much better quote than yours. <laughs> um, he is much more quotable. Uh, he says, "A grand design is whatever you want it to be, whatever you want to accomplish in life." There you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think I think we're definitely on the right track, but I think this song. Neil's lyrics have a way of speaking with people differently and on different levels. And I think a lot of the songs have, or a lot of the songs you can interpret differently. I mean, there's songs like, you know, limelight or subdivisions, which are, you can only really interpret one way, but I think this song, you could tie this back to the individualism mindset he was in, in the mid seventies, you know, but I would agree with you guys. I think it, I think it is more about, pieces of art and music being pieces of art, you know, art as expression, not as market campaigns. Mm. You know, I really think they're talking about themselves and the music that they're writing. I really think that's, that's the direction that this song, this, this song goes. I mean, they go on to sing so much mind on the matter. The spirit gets forgotten about, you know, Mm -hmm. the heart and soul of music is forgotten about with hair metal bands. Uh, and, the integrity of the music is off, often overlooked. So the theme of Power Windows is power. So is this the power of creative expression that we're talking about here? Creativity. I think so. Absolutely. I think so too. So much poison in power, the principles get left out. So much mind on the matter, the spirit gets forgotten about. Neil's making a statement about the other forms of art and music that are out there. That aren't worth worth anything to him. Yeah, or the people who control them, right? The mm-hmm. Poison and power. That's exactly what I was just about to say. Yeah, the record company, mm-hmm. the record company, or any gatekeeper that's trying to keep, you know, is trying to trying to make something out of nothing. They have a different goal. They have money. Money as a goal. Yeah. yeah. It goes back to with twenty one twelve. You know, they said, "Take your music in the direction we want you to, and, and don't go in the direction that." you want to go in and instead they went in the direction that they wanted to go in. They, you know, stayed true to, to them and stuck to their guns. And here we are, but right. They paid attention to the spirit. Exactly. And they didn't have their mind on, on the matter, whatever the matter would be money, popularity. Yeah. Because by being true to themselves and keeping the spirit alive of their own creativity, they were able to tap into a huge following who appreciate that. But in popular culture, Rush was overlooked, right? Kind of like what they're referring to in these lyrics, like a righteous inspiration overlooked in haste, like a teardrop in the ocean, a diamond in the waste. I love, love that I line. love it. 
a teardrop in the ocean. You know, amongst that sea of other bands that were hugely popular at that time, Rush's albums were being overlooked, right? But they were the best of, of their era, really, or one of them. Well, they still sold a lot of records to the people who liked them. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly they, they made videos in the 80s, but certainly they were not the most fashion-forward band in the world. They seemed very uncomfortable making videos, if you ask me, if you, if you look at those kind of videos. They were just kind of doing them, I guess, as promotion. That's what the videos were anyway, promotional pieces. But, you know, it was all about, it's, it's a difficult thing to straddle, right? Is to be true to yourself, but also a be appealing it's been rush's appeal the entire time is that whatever it is about them that makes them them other people love you know they aren't some kind of band that fans generally fall away from like other bands you know other bands have tried start out one way really heavy and tried to go into a different direction and their fans just didn't follow them they wouldn't let them be as creative as they wanted to be and rush fans have never been like that so what do you think of this line? Some worldviews are spacious and some are merely spaced. <laughs> I wanted to just touch real quick on the, like a teardrop in the ocean. Sure. Does that not remind you of the lyric in a motion detector? Sometimes our big splashes are just ripples in the pool. Sure. I think they're kind of comparable lines. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. But I always, always heard it as, and some are merely space. So I don't know if he actually says spaced or if he says space. I guess spaced rhymes with waste. Yeah. Some worldviews are spacious and some are merely spaced. What do you, I'm not sure what spaced means. I think it's like spacey. Like if you say somebody is spacey, they're kind of... Oh, like a space cadet? Spaced out? Yeah, it's spaced out. They're disoriented. They're not thinking straight. Right. I think that line is is saying whatever you want to say, the hair metal bands or kind of the run of the mill bands, you know, that are just there to make a, a quick buck and not really putting too much thought into it. They're kind of just conforming and doing what everybody else is doing. Whereas rush is different. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the, the synths was a sign of the eighties, but the lyrics that rush always sang about and, and, you know, the thought that Neil put into the, these lyrics is that much different than what everybody else was doing. So let's finish these up. Against the run of the mill, static as it seems, we break the surface tension with our wild kinetic dreams. Curves and lines of grand designs. Wild kinetic dreams. Love that. Yeah, I like the idea of, of surface tension, water surface tension. Because, you know, it, it's, water is an interesting thing anyway, but, you know, it has, it has that coherence at the top that you need a certain amount of pressure to get through. and you know, some things are above the waterline, some things are below the waterline. I guess what he's trying to say is that there are things, music, art, or whatever, that's just kind of like subpar. But you need your wild kinetic dreams to break through to the, to the, you know, the upper atmosphere. I'm assuming that's what he's trying to say. And then curves and lines of grand designs. You know, nature doesn't have straight lines in it. There are only curves. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are no right angles. In nature, right angles are, are something that, that people make. But, you know, trees don't grow at right angles. Things don't grow at right angles. Animals don't really have right angles on them. It's all bumpy and curved. Am I reading too much into no, that? No, no. Oh. I don't think so at all. <laughs> I, I, think, I think 
we've missed though discussing against the run of the mill static as it seems i mean against the run of the mill they're saying again we're going to be different you know we're going to be creative and think outside the box and not be static something that's static is something that always stays the same you know uh, uh, something that is dynamic i mean i work in the it field you've got static ip addresses and dynamic ip addresses you know dynamic ip addresses change static ip addresses stay the same it's kind of i mean obviously this was written in 1985 so that wouldn't apply <laughs> but the terminology does you know uh russia was dynamic they're they're ever changing and that's why some of the fans dropped off in, mm -hmm. in this era because of of how how much they changed but again they stay true to themselves in in true rush fashion and clearly it paid off we always bring up the example of acdc and they would be a band that you would say is static right because very much so every acdc album as much as i love acdc you know 16 year old kids love the new acdc album power up just like i did in 1980 when back in black came out same album i listened to it it sounds exactly like back in black it really <laughs> does but it's Money Talks. <laughs> That's a song by ACDC, too. It sounds exactly <laughs> like Back in Black. No. Even Angus Young has said that. I mean, somebody complained that, you know, uh, ACDC has made like 11 albums in a row that sound the same. And he said, no, no, no. It's 12 albums in a row that sound the same. <laughs> <laughs> Even he's aware of it. I mean, they have, their, they have their niche or whatever. That's just what they do. So, Ryan, we saw... Rush performed Grand Designs on the Power Windows tour, and I'm guessing that you probably thought you'd never see them perform this live, correct? I mean, you're going to the Clockwork Angels tour. You're thinking, oh, the last thing they're going to play is Grand Designs. What was your reaction when you saw them do this song for the first time? I was the type of person that needed to know the set list ahead oh, of time. okay. One of those. <laughs> Mainly because, yeah, one of those guys. Mainly because I needed to make that, set list for my mother who went with me to all these rush shows oh, okay. so that she could get familiar with the songs um but what, yeah once i saw it uh on the set i thought wow this is going to be fantastic to see live and i you know i get i get chills just thinking about it i get chills watching the clockwork angels dvd going back you know in time and, and seeing this nine years ago eight years ago but uh yeah, I mean, Power Windows being my favorite album, they did a lot of Power Windows songs on that tour and a lot of 80s stuff on that tour, which was phenomenal. But I couldn't get enough of it. Had to go three times. How did it go with your mom? How did she like the, the Rush songs, the playlist you made for her? Did you convert her? She loved it. She just doesn't like the trees. Really? Like the trees. She really? does not like the trees. That, that's Anytime <laughs> that comes on, she skip. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why it's just That's funny. not, not a song she enjoys, but, uh, so one last thing I wanted to bring up uh, another quote I found, this is from guitar player magazine, 1986. I'm always talking about the fades and Getty Lee talks about the fade out in this song. Invariably, every time we decide we're going to fade out, we start getting into the fade and everyone loosens up and the track mm. starts getting better. It also happened with mystic rhythms, the fade out, it's about a minute long because we liked every little nuance and the end of grand designs is also like that. I think that's amazing. They just, they just loosened up because they figured this is fading out anyway. Let's just jam. And it turned out to be better than they imagined. And they left most of it in. That's great. 
well, I mean, a whole 45 seconds is Getty Lee just singing, oh. Yeah. All right, but Neil definitely, he does like that drum roll toward the end as they he does. start cooking. It's, it yeah. really is a great way to, to end a song. Maybe they should have just ended it, though, right, Steve? That's, that would be your argument. They had to do it live, though. They had to learn how to play that part live. He, he goes on to say in the quote that they had to learn to play it for when they performed it live, and they had to obviously come up with an ending. You're not going to fade out in concert. I wonder if you could do that. I wonder if anyone has ever done that. I'm sure you could. Just turned, just turned everything down. But why? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just keep on playing, but just every, just you know, the master uh, volume just goes down a little bit. So, any other last thoughts on Grand Designs before we wrap this up, guys? I'll take that as a no. I'm still at <laughs> no closer to really understanding the the the, the actual meaning. You of don't the song. have to understand Rush lyrics as long as you enjoy it. Yeah, you know? I I have to. I feel like I have to. Jerry has to. I don't have to. You don't have to, Ryan. Rush is one of those bands that, that rewards, you know, overthinking. And I like to overthink about the, the lyrics. Well, again, song. I think that's why, you know, Neil's lyrics are so great because you can interpret it however you want. It's a weird song. What can you say? Yeah, exactly. Well, Ryan, thanks for helping us interpret this song today. We really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for joining us for the third time on Something for Nothing. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Jared, that worked out fantastic. It did. It was such a good idea, Steve. This this was your baby. Was it really? I think so. Yeah. You were like, let's have people on because I don't think you trusted us to do a good job since the, the well, crappy job we did the first time. <laughs> I was more afraid that we would repeat ourselves and they would just be carbon copies of the first two episodes. So I think to ensure that that didn't happen, we get another perspective on it from different people. And I think Nathan was perfect for the big money. I mean, oh yeah. He knows so much about everything music-wise. I mean, he's he's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't kidding. We should just have him back and and just let him go. I, I would love to hear him talk about hemispheres. He yeah. should just host the podcast. <laughs> Why don't we just step aside and let Nathan do it? Right. <laughs> and we'll be the guests every once in a while. <laughs> and Ryan, he loves Power Windows so much. I mean, we couldn't do a Power Windows retrospective without Ryan. I know. He he's foolishly in love with with Power Windows. It's his favorite. I don't know if it's foolish, but I mean, if you put Grand Designs as your number two Rush song out of 169 Rush songs or whatever it is, yeah, that's that's foolishly in love. <laughs> I was thinking more of like the you know like the um, uh, like the Joe Jackson song "Fools in Love," you know, right, right, something like that. It's not that he's a fool and it's foolish to be in love, but you know, you kind of act like a like a. He just loves Power Windows. He's giddy like a schoolgirl around Power Windows. Exactly right. He's so he's. He gets red-faced and stutters whenever he's around power windows. Anyway, so I'm very excited about the rest of these episodes. So we're going to do three more episodes on power windows, and we're going to have six more guests to help yeah. us. And it'll be a surprise who it's going to be. Right. Even to us. Even to us. So, <laughs> so you got a quote to wrap this up for us, Jer? I do. And believe it or not, it's from The Big Money. I believe it. Yeah, believe it or not. It's that old-time religion... It's the kingdom they would rule. It's that fool on television getting paid to play the fool. Or the fool on the podcast not getting paid to play the fool. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that's us, Steve? That's us. Take it easy. All right, bye. <laughs>